Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast in need of a shot in the arm. My name is Corey Hazelhurst and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hi, Corey. In this episode, we're going to talk about vaccine diplomacy, which countries are spearheading the rollout of the vaccine across the world and what implications does that have? about mainly British politics for almost five years, Steve, we're now going to branch out beyond our area of expertise, one might say, and try and talk about geopolitics. Well, we're nothing if not ambitious here at Not Enough Champagne. I've usually tried to follow the example of Chris Mullen, who said the only way he kept credibility was to only talk about things he knew about. So our credibility might be tested on this. If it is, we'll send social media details at the end and you can correct us uh, at at your leisure one might say it's been quite fun researching this episode actually because a a few fun facts that i found out one of them is and let's begin with this country so india turns out is the world's biggest producer of vaccines which is not something i knew about it not only produces 60 percent of the global demand for for all vaccines not just the covid vaccine but all vaccines and also 20 percent of the global production of pharmaceuticals as well so on the 20% of the global pharmaceuticals, that one doesn't necessarily surprise me too much because there are an awful lot of pharmaceutical companies who basically trade in generic versions of brand name uh, products and, and goods and drugs. Uh, and I did know that an awful lot of those were based in India previously. The fact that so many of the vaccines are, are produced there does shock me a little bit because I would have thought that those would have been, been created in AstraZeneca, for instance. It would be in the UK if it's Pfizer, the US or, or, or whatever, you know, all of the, wherever they're, they're kind of based. But I suppose what, what, what it probably is, is the case is that an awful lot of the experience in kind of creating uh, drugs and uh, medicines will be found in India already because of the pre-existing like companies which are focused on producing drugs of other kinds and therefore you go to where an awful lot of the talent already is and therefore you 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 go to India but it is interesting that no one thinks of India as this like powerhouse of industry on any level in, in reality whenever you think of like jobs in india people think of call service uh you know customer service lines and, and, and but you don't they've they don't seem to have done a particularly good job as a nation of kind of like presenting themselves as this potentially in, potential industrial powerhouse i i had no idea that the manufacture of, of pharmaceuticals and vaccines was their big thing when you talk about generic versions like non-brand versions of branded vaccines is that the, the the medical equivalent of the like you go to little and they don't have frosties they have like sugar flakes or something in effect yeah that, that is what it is so they obviously pretty much all drugs have a large degree of kind of like patents behind them in, in internationally which which prevents people from recreating them but after a certain amount of time there are um different uh, you know these things fall fall away, and you, you need and and people can then start producing them themselves. Effectively, the copyright goes away, um, and that's what an awful lot of I think the Indian pharmaceutical sector, in, in a lot of ways, is is kind of focused in on. But that's my understanding of it, at any rate. That big manufacturing base of 
vaccines and pharmaceuticals they have in India has been used to manufacture lots of drugs throughout the pandemic, including apparently hydroxychloroquine. Do you remember when hydroxychloroquine was going to solve everything? I do indeed. And then turned out that we just needed to inject ourselves with bleach, wasn't it? That, that, that was the, uh, the follow up treatment. I believe so. So it was, uh, yeah, so drugs like that and also vaccines for other countries as well. So as you say, although we talk about the um, say AstraZeneca, the Pfizer vaccine, the Oxford vaccine, actually developed by scientists in, say, the UK, but actually a lot of the, a lot of them, the doses themselves are made in India. So as you say, because in India there is this big infrastructure to make lots of vaccines, they are making lots of vaccines. One thing India is also doing is explicitly ensuring that lots of vaccines go to lots of different countries as well aren't they particularly in asia and southeast asia so particularly to their their neighbors as well so countries like bangladesh nepal sri lanka afghanistan all have been promised lots of vaccine doses by the indian government yeah, it, it's quite interesting that what India is doing on this front because it's it's almost like the opposite of what a lot of the uh, a lot of other Western uh, European US nations are doing. Where they're, I think the term I've seen, which I quite like, is vaccine nationalism, uh, which has been very much you know we are buying everything we can for our people and that's it. And then we're maybe you know they are buying for some things and donating to Covax the. Uh, I think it's a WHO program to try and get um, the rest of the world vaccinated as, as quickly as possible. But uh, India seems to be adopting a very different a, a different approach in that they are spreading the love in effect and they're producing these things and they're making sure that they are getting out to other nations rather than hoarding it all for themselves. Now, I suspect like you know, a part of this is them being pragmatic and sensible and kind of going, well, you know what? If our neighbours uh, end up still getting COVID-19 in, in the near future, we still run the risk of having outbreaks anyway. And when you've got uh, got as many people in your populace as India has, you know, there's a logistical nightmare in getting everybody uh, vaccinated at, at the best of times. But so, which means that if you do have, like neighbours who aren't properly vaccinated at the same time, you run the risk of more outbreaks in, in rural areas and places that it's going to be very difficult for you to control where that happens, which means you you run the risk of major outbreaks uh, happening again. So from a practical viewpoint, I think it's it's quite a sensible policy for them. But I also think there's probably a level of realpolitik to a lot of this in that they get to be magnanimous in their, in their in effect, "Quote unquote charity in, in helping out uh, their neighbours in a way that a lot of other other places aren't, and thus cement themselves maybe more as a, a a major player within their region." Yeah, let's unpick a few a bit of that. So there's definitely part of it seems to be about improving the image of India, the Indian government generally, and it is an image which is in need of a little bit of polish. One of the reasons why India apparently is helping Bangladesh explicitly is because the Bangladeshi government was outraged by the new citizens law that the Modi government passed, which essentially was about, uh, I think many saw it as disenfranchising Muslims, didn't they? And so I think one of the reasons why the Indian government is being quite generous with its neighbours like Bangladesh is to try and rebuild relationships with governments like Bangladesh. But then you've also got the, the big story at the moment in India, yeah, the protests about the farmers at the moment, because the Modi government is trying to attempt reforms, which would 
massively impact the incomes of a lot of Indian farmers. And there have been protests for weeks, if not months. Uh, the government, I believe, shut down the internet recently to try and deal with that. Delhi police tried to book Greta Thunberg for tweeting about it. That, that was quite fun. As you say, there's definitely a bit of a part of this is a PR campaign to try and improve the image of, of India, I think kind of desperately need it at the moment when you're when you're in a position where it's not just Greta Thunberg who is you know somebody who is quite politically active in 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 general tweeting about this like Rihanna the pop star has been tweeting about this for you to kind of get to the level where like the the fans of Rihanna are finding about about it because because she's tweeting about it that that suggests that there's a definite PR problem you have that needs that you need to kind of like grasp before it kind of spirals more out of control. The best way to do that would be, of course, to actually resolve this situation sensibly. Um, however, that doesn't look like what Modi is actually doing. I think you're also right to say it is a hell of a political gamble because India would need a billion doses of vaccine to protect its own population. So if you're banking on being able to make enough doses to vaccinate all of your population, plus also pass on millions of doses to your neighbours. That is a, a hell of a gamble you're taking. But as you say, probably one of the reasons they're doing that, that geopolitical angle, is essentially because, especially in, in Asia, Southeast Asia, they're trying to compete for influence with China, aren't they? Because China as well is on a bit of a, a, a vaccine diplomatic mission. Yeah, I mean, China uh, has been very focused i i think on trying to repair their their reputation in a similar way to to india but obviously as the initial source for the uh for the for the covid-19 uh, coronavirus um they are desperate to try and position themselves as we're not the guys who just caused it or or got it first or or whatever we're the guys who fixed it as well um, so they are going very strongly all in and on a number of different vaccines and and treatments as well all with the aim of one that kind of like international PR kind of uh, approach um, of saying, "Hey, look at all this good work we're doing! Aren't we lovely?" Uh, but at the same time, they're also then uh, then continuing an already existing policy of effectively being nice to um, parts of the world that traditionally the West hasn't necessarily been as nice to, and, and just trying to kind of bring them into their own sphere of influence that their vaccine program and their kind of like contributions to things like COVAX and things like that need to be kind of viewed in that light as well, because ultimately, well, sorry, the Chinese government are very savvy when it comes to positioning themselves internationally. And they are very good at turning a situation to their advantage in that regard. Again, yeah, just to, just to unpack a few of those things. So there's a, like in India, there's definitely a bit of a, an image uh, a, a PR campaign, partly because of the treatment of the Uyghurs, which I think is receiving more and more international attention, even if not then actual action happening as a result of any of the atrocities that are going on. As you say, there's also the need uh, because uh, 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 to say China, maybe where the virus originated, but it's also the place where that helped end the virus. Um, just on that slightly brief tangent, but fun fact I learned from reading Richard Evans in the New Statesman this week is, so I kind of knew the Spanish flu, that Spain wasn't quite where the Spanish flu originated, but Evans in his piece says actually it originated in Kansas. And the reason it's known as the Spanish flu is because uh, during the First World War, Spain was a neutral country. 
it was the only country whose government didn't actively try and suppress news of the flu outbreaks happening in those countries. So it was happening all over the place, but that's why it's almost like the opposite <laughs> um, originating in, in Wuhan, where the Chinese tried originally to suppress the news. That's spectacular in a, in a very weird historical way. So there is that. There's also, as you say, there's China's Belt and Road Initiative, which not infrastructure, not just it supports infrastructure in Europe as well. So I think countries like Italy and Hungary have been recipients of this, um, but especially in Nepal and Sri Lanka. Uh, so India is trying to compete with that with some of its vaccine diplomacy, but China's also has funded infrastructure projects in those countries. Um, those of you who are familiar with the Belt and Road Initiative will know it's very much a carrot and stick approach. China isn't just doing it to be nice to these particular countries. And there are certain strings attached to often to those infrastructure projects that are then built in those places. But there is also that geopolitical aspect. So we've got uh, Trump administration uh, withdrawing a lot, actually, from Asia, uh, talking about trying to withdraw troops from South Korea, talking about maybe not extending protections to Japan, uh, which makes those countries particularly wary. And interesting, actually, that both Japan and South Korea as well are countries who try to develop a, home, develop a homegrown vaccine and, and didn't. So are having to sort of rely on more international efforts as well. But there's definitely an angle here, which is retreating US power and China essentially trying to fill a vacuum of diplomatic relations in Southeast Asia. Yeah, and this is where things could get potentially interesting over the next six months or so, I suspect, in that, you know, we are getting to a point where, where hopefully, touch wood, by summer, the vast majority of people in, uh, certainly the vulnerable people in the, in you know, the UK, uh, Europe and, and the States um, will be vaccinated. Um, which then puts a for, for President Biden creates an interesting little opportunity because if you've got China and and India though I you know I don't really think America's too concerned about India kind of doing these sorts of things um, they are definitely going to be concerned with China doing it if you've got China trying to kind of utilize Covax the Covax program and and other programs like that to uh, push you know, support for China and kind of get and earn brownie points for China through kind of uh, through those programs. I suspect what we'll probably find is the uh, the US administration uh, announcing a similar thing. If there had been a sensible approach to the pandemic, to vaccine acquisition, and indeed to international diplomacy for the past four years uh, in Trump's White House, we'd have probably already have had like statements and announcements on that on that kind of front. We don't have that at the moment because you know, the US is so far behind where it needed to be because of failures in the Trump administration that Biden's now having to to kind of like pick up the pieces and fix. But I would suspect um, over the summer, this, this may not be headline news, but I suspect what you'll probably find is there'll be a, a number of announcements about kind of like helping fund COVAX more effectively um, or kind of like donating um, significant numbers of vaccines, um, which is a good thing um, in and of itself, um, because if we don't actually get sorted um, with vaccination, the rest of the world there's an entire cycle of terribleness that could actually happen yeah let's talk about that because the so the issue of vaccine justice i think is a really really interesting one so another fun stat for you rich countries have 60 percent of the 7.2 billion covid doses that are out there but only have 16 percent of the world's population there is a massive issue of how are you going to get the vaccine to a lot of the 
poorer countries in the world, which is partly why things like India's vaccine diplomacy, China's vaccine diplomacy as well. So China investing a lot in Africa as part of the Belt and Road Initiative, lots of vaccines going there as well. This was happening even when China's vaccine, I don't think, had been signed off by the WHO. I'm not sure if it has been approved yet, actually, either. But there's, there have been cases, apparently, of people um, being arrested in China for producing fake vaccines, which, which literally just saline drips, which don't, are actually, don't actually work. It'll be, it, it could all massively backfire, actually, the, if it turns out that some of the PPE that they've been giving, that China's been giving African countries isn't working, or if, the, if there are issues with, with the vaccine. The China, I think it's the, the Chinese vaccine, if that doesn't work, potentially an even bigger PR disaster waiting for them there. There's always going to be an issue for China when it comes to kind of like manufacturing things and kind of like sending them out to the, to, to the wider world. Um, and that's just the simple fact that an awful, that there is a very large market in China for the production of counterfeit goods. Um, that is just a, a, a fact, like the vast majority of counterfeit goods in the world, are, I, I believe, are, are produced in China, certainly for like things like high end fashion and, and things like that, which, as you say, opens up a real risk where if China isn't able to get a whole uh, get a handle on that, and things are being shipped out under the guise of it being, you know, the Chinese vaccine or Chinese PPE equipment, and then it turns out to not be, you know, you and any kind of goodwill that they might have uh, created through, you know, donating these vaccines and things like that could then just go bye-bye and vanish. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, going back to the issue of, of the kind of vaccine justice then, so the issue of refugees or um, non-documented workers, whether or not they get the vaccine. So it's interesting that you've got a few... So, it, so Nebraska's governor, who's a Republican, is essentially saying that undocumented immigrants will be ineligible for COVID-19 vaccines in, in his state. Whereas other countries, I think I'm right in saying that Thailand, possibly Malaysia, they are vaccinating all workers, all undocumented workers as well. And, and then there's also the issue of refugees as well, um, particularly Colombian refugees going into Venezuela, where there's, I think, 1.7 Venezuelans um, already putting a strain on that infrastructure and who's going to vaccinate. Yeah, absolutely. And that that is very much going to be one of those things which I suspect in the near future we'll we'll start hearing um kind of like new stories about because those kind of populations are very much going to be the sorts of places where once the vast majority of the population has been vaccinated and life is starting to get back to normal the the coronavirus can run rampant in those sorts of areas because if you have the if you don't have a policy in place of basically vaccinating everybody you know coronavirus covid19 no illness actually cares whether or not you're illegally there whether you're undocumented whether you're a refugee whether you're you know you know a legal migrant or, or whatever it just knows that you you're capable of transmitting the disease and will do so so if you don't actually act on on that, you're creating not just a, a humanitarian issue, but a, a much a wider kind of problem. Because when we talk about vaccine justice and, and, and everything, really, we do need to be kind of talking about this, not just from a, a sense of morality of, you know, everybody should be getting this and we should be assisting to make, get this done as quickly as possible. There's a very pragmatic reason to be making sure that everybody gets a vaccine as quick as possible. It's that the, the sooner we can build up global herd immunity to this, the less likely there is the damn thing's going to mutate, get into a position where it's more lethal, more spreadable. So if we don't get moving and kind of like solving uh, this issue or, or start putting the logistics in place, we could very well find ourselves in an elongated problem where over time 
you know, we're probably not going to have something like we have at the moment where the entirety of the world is basically on lockdown, but we could easily have a place, a case of, oh crap, Sweden's got a COVID, COVID outbreak. Well, better, better lockdown. Oh no, Lithuania's got one, better lockdown. Canada's got one. Well, we'll just lock down Quebec because it's only in Quebec, you know, but you know, it's, it's that kind of thing is what, what, what we could end up doing. We're just playing kind of um, whack-a-mole with the virus um, try uh, as it kind of spreads around and continues to mutate rather than actually doing a, a, a full unified attempt at dealing with it properly in one swoop. I think whack-a-mole actually was Boris Johnson's strategy in August and we've had two lockdowns and eight changes of policy since then. Well, there you go. Proof positive that we need to start moving up the timelines for COVAX. And you look at the, the history of something, say, like bubonic plague, you, you hear about the, the Black Death of 1348, you hear about the, uh, the recurrence, I think, in 16... 16- 68 i think it was um so there's the there's two big outbreaks but then there was a lot that the the plague itself actually kept recurring at various intervals between the 14th century and the last outbreak in britain is in the 19th century so um you know in um in the late 16th century it was bad enough that theaters got closed so the globe theater couldn't perform at all in i think 1595 because of this plague outbreak. So you're right, like the worst case scenario here is there's a succession of coronaviruses that, that keep happening. Uh, and given that the, the nature of the disease itself, you know, the reason why we have coronavirus is because essentially humans have encroached onto the habitat habitats of other animals, bats in this case, I think it was, while there's 5,000 other kind of coronaviruses out there that could mutate into any any point in a similar way, you do have to have a proper strategy to engage with these issues. And it's this is something that's happened in other pandemics too, because both for H1N1 and for Ebola, I think, there was some similar vaccine nationalism. I don't know if maybe it's that there's more of a populist, as you say, vaccine nationalism out now than there was in the past, or whether it's because actually... The nature of COVID means it's just so much more serious. It means we're paying more attention to it. There's some really interesting timelines that I think this is the Economist Intelligence Unit have, have put out. So if you look at the OECD countries with a vaccine supply deal, including, say, the EU and Britain, America, it looks like by September this year, it looked like all the population would have had a, a vaccine to then all restrictions can be lifted January 2022 is what this timeline says. If you've got, say, uh, middle-income countries like like Brazil, India, we've talked about, who've got priority access, Russia as well, and China, a later sort of stage. So you're looking at restrictions there being eased by June 22. But countries eligible for, for COVAX, we're talking about the poorest countries here, as you say, um, we're not looking at all the population there being vaccinated till April 2022 and not having all restrictions lifted till January 2024. Basically three years. Think about in the past year, how many different variants of COVID-19 that, that have, have emerged. Just within the past couple of uh, couple of months, you know, we've talked about the South African variant. We've got the United Kingdom variant. There's been a Norwegian variant, which, but there have been lots and lots of different mutations just in a, in a year. If you've got, if it's taking three years to get to a point where, you know, normality quote unquote can be res- can be restored 
there's going to be an awful lot of time in that for more and more variants to to establish themselves and that's where we get into this whack-a-mole situation that i described earlier and it really does just go to show exactly how much and how how much work needs to go in and how many vaccines need to actually be produced and donated to get this that that number down because otherwise we are internationally and globally still at risk of this thing um it could still spiral out of control like or, or and even if it doesn't necessarily spiral out of control th- this kind of response could be the difference between this being a one and done like um uh, like bird flu and h1n1 or it being a part of our seasonality and it becomes like you need to get a covid shot covid shot every year like you do with the flu um and let's be honest i think we'd all prefer not to have to deal with that and so and if we can actually get our act together we minimize the chances of that being a thing um should we end on that particularly happy and optimistic note yeah <laughs> lovely so i hope you've enjoyed that foray into global politics what one area actually of international affairs we'd like to talk more about over the next year or two is french politics uh because there's a french election coming up next year it looks like it's gonna be exciting terrifying whatever adjective you want to use. So we are, we are looking for the, the French Patrick Cook, Patrice Cook, if you like, or what's French for cook? Chef. Chef, Patrice, chef. Patrice <laughs> chef. There you go. So um, the reason, obviously, we, uh, so we are looking for someone who um, understands French politics, can actually read some of the articles in the French press that we won't be able to, to read, and, have, and who is interested in French politics and willing and able to talk about it with us on the podcast. Looked up what the French uh, for cook is, that's all. And what is it? Uh, it's cuisinaire. Ah, Patrice so Patrice cuisinaire. cuisinaire. There we go. Anyone with a Parisian telephone directory, please get in touch. I'm afraid we've, we've given, I've been moving house in the middle of a pandemic, good old champagners, uh, the ability and bandwidth to be able to record episodes for your good selves has been limited in January, but now we are in February and we are going to have a we're going to record a patron episode for you on the fallout between the EU and the UK a very different nature of vaccine diplomacy so if you want to catch that steve and support the work that we're doing what do you need to do you can go to patreon.com slash not enough champagne uh, where you can fling us a few quid uh, every month and you'll gain access to, as, as Corey alluded to there, um, unique episodes which uh, only go out to our, our, our champagners over there. Um, you'll also get some, uh, some, some blog articles that are unique or early access to certain blog articles as well. There's been a few that have gone up so far this year um, on issues like um, Keir Starmer's leadership, um, what Johnson's, Johnson, Boris Johnson wants his legacy today that kind of thing um and there'll be some more stuff kind of happening in, in discussing looking at uh, u.s politics on that front as well so yeah head over there um take a look um fling us a few quid and uh, we hope to see you there our website is notenoughchampagne.com james cram designer logo you can follow him on twitter at james cram and dave depper composed our theme tune for good times if you want to correct any of our assertions on geopolitics you can find the podcast on twitter at no champagne pod i'm on twitter at paperback rioter i'm at acoustic radical happy plotting everyone Mm -hmm.